welcome to the Supply Chain Careers Podcast, the only podcast for job seekers, professionals, and students who are focused on career-enhancing conversations and insights across all aspects of the supply chain discipline. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com. I'm your podcast co-host, Mike Ogle. And I'm your podcast co-host, Rodney Apple. In this episode of the Supply Chain Careers podcast, Kate Vitasek, who is known widely for her work on the vested business model for collaborative relationships, and who is also an executive education faculty member at the University of Tennessee, shares her supply chain career journey, starting as a teenager working at a grocery store, then the store's warehouse, to becoming a supply chain graduate and going to work for Procter & Gamble, Accenture, and Microsoft. She talks with us about the value of having experience on both the buyer and supplier sides and how that influenced the development of the vested collaborative model. Kate shares her thoughts on business relationships, the great value of soft skills on top of hard skills, how to adopt a more innovative mindset, the value of career surfing, and how continuously growing your network leads to innovation and continued career growth and success. Kate, we're happy to have you with us today. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's always exciting to share my thoughts on supply chain with folks. So how did you get started on your supply chain career journey? What were some of the early influences? Well, just by happenstance, when I was um, 16 years old, I actually worked for Kroger and transferred from the store to the warehouse. And so my junior and senior year of high school, I actually worked in the warehouse as a clerk and was right in the middle of warehousing. I was on the night shift because I was the shipping clerk, getting the boxes ready to go to the store. And so I've been around warehouses since I was a teenager. And then I went to the University of Tennessee. And of course, they have a supply chain and logistics degree. Back then, it was called logistics uh, and marketing. And I chose the marketing path. But marketing and logistics were hand in hand, the same department. So I was exposed to logistics. And we even had to take a class, no matter what you were taking in the College of Business. Everyone had to go through a logistics class. I thought, this is really kind of cool. So my graduate degree, I decided to get a supply chain degree. So undergraduate in marketing and a graduate in degree in supply chain. What were some of the key positions you've held uh, within your career as it relates to supply chain? And what are some of the lessons you've learned during the transitions between positions and different companies, including your own company? Early on, after my marketing degree, I worked for Procter & Gamble. And even though I was in marketing, it also has a huge impact on supply chain. My very first uh, job was actually working in grocery retail operations and going into the stores and making sure the shelves were prominently displaying the P&G products, something was out of stock. So weirdly enough, marketing related back to supply chain and getting product into the stores. And after getting my graduate degree in supply chain, that's really what I knew I wanted to do, actually, is one of the hardest decisions I had was to not continue at P&G, but to really shift into supply chain. And my first kind of real job in supply chain was at Accenture, right out of graduate school. 
getting my MBA and we did supply chain strategy. Back then they called it logistics strategy. What an amazing job. You know, you go from this project to this project to this project and you can see all the different problems that people have in their supply chain and get a chance to work on them. So it was really fun to have that diversity. Consulting's not for everyone, but if you do get an opportunity to do consulting and you're not sure what aspects of supply chain, it was a blast. And that led me to Microsoft, where I had done a supply chain fulfillment strategy, actually not a a full supply chain, but fulfillment operations. Gosh, we don't have a, a manual for our software in Singapore. And it was called Disk and Docs. Back in the day, you had a diskette and a dock, you know, the manual, and your dog would eat your disk. And so we were brought in as a center to look at this disk and dock problem. It was actually one of the top 10 problems of Microsoft. My dog ate my disk. You wouldn't think about that, right? (laughs) And so we got to work on this and develop a worldwide fulfillment strategy. There were 70 some odd languages, all these countries getting a spare part of a a manual because somebody was stuck and didn't know DOS was quite a a challenge and a fun, fun project to work on. Well, I eventually went to work for Microsoft and began to work on a lot of their marketing operations and how they would actually outsource. And that, that really got me to where I'm at now without really thinking about outsourcing and supply chain and the work that we do and invested outsourcing at the University of Tennessee. My early learnings came from Microsoft as being on the, the, the buyer side and trying to figure out how do I work with all these suppliers around the world that I have to outsource to because I don't have the core competency. And on that note, speaking of the vested way, and I found that extremely intriguing as I was reading up on it last week, you talk a lot about highly collaborative business relationships. What are some of the key features from a business and as well as a personal level? Well, as buyers, and I've definitely been on the buy side working for Microsoft, outsourcing some of their largest uh, outsourcing initiatives. I've been on the supply side. Right. So being the receiving end. And I think one of the things that we do as buyers is we don't let go. You hire the supplier as the expert. Think about it. You've outsourced because it's not a core competency. Yet you turn around and tell that supplier who it is or core competency how to do the work. And it's very frustrating. If you were going to go to have a great meal and does the chef want you to bring the menu You're going to them for their expertise. We say we want these great 3PL relationships. And as buyers and suppliers, we're showing up buying and selling commodities. And we don't know how to put the relationship first and solve problems through our relationship, through our governance, and even the incentives. So our contracts are full of perverse incentives. You don't hit the fill rate, you get a penalty, right? So if I want to hire you for a job, Do I go, well, I'd really like you for this job, but you get a 3% year-over-year salary reduction. And if you don't do exactly what's in your 100-page statement of work and hit your 42 metrics, you're going to get a penalty. No one wants to do that. And so our personal life, we would never do some of these things. Yet as buyers and suppliers, we violate all of these known good social norms that we would have. and. Funny enough, the best relationships actually foster the relationship. They put that relationship first. In our HBR article this past year, we wrote about formal relational contracts. And if we can 
contract to get the relationship, all the soft stuff, right? Then the hard stuff follows as long as you've got someone who's competent. Now that brings us to the point of hard skills and soft skills because they are different. And in a vested relationship, you've got to have the hard skills or the capabilities, but it's the soft skills that get people out of whack and create friction in the relationships. That makes good sense. What are your thoughts on large retailers that are putting some of these stringent requirements with shipping on time, shipping in full? That doesn't seem to mesh with your philosophy. Well, I'm not saying that we shouldn't put those things front and center. We should, right? We should ship on time and we should um, ship in full. However, we don't stop and think about the root cause analysis. So it's not that you shouldn't be focusing on those metrics. You absolutely should. It's that we need to have the soft skills to say, well, what's the root cause analysis? All too often, we just go and automatically assume something is the supplier's fault, when in reality, sometimes the buyer had a bad input or it was something out of control. So instead of fixing the root cause or working together to reduce these risks, we put all the pressure on the supplier and that puts friction on the relationship. And we aren't really optimizing and building these great collaborative relationships, solving the underlying problems. We get stuck on transactions, this shipment, this score on this shipment, the red scorecard, the penalty, and it's a race to the bottom instead of what's the root cause analysis and fixing the root cause. So continuation on the hard and soft skills side of things, when you see people trying to establish a relationship, how do you walk them down the path of getting better <laughs> at their approach to both customers or, or any partner that they work with? Well, that's a great question. You have to have the hard skills to get the job. If I'm a 3PL, you have to have the hard skills in order to get the contract. And so to me, when you're hiring someone for hard skills, you have to look for the raw education, the experience. Have they, do they have their battle wounds? So have they actually done things like that? <clears throat> or are you willing to take an investment and train them in that piece? That's okay too. My job, actually, when I look back on my career, it's really interesting that people took a chance on me. I'd never done consulting before. And so if you can take someone who's got some raw, positive, great energy, willingness to learn, you can teach them some of the hard skills. And so they kind of go hand in hand. But I do find that as people advance in their careers, it's the soft skills that trip them up. My neighbor, for example, wanted someone that was an MBA that had an engineering background, but she wanted someone who really got the bigger picture. And she reached out to me. She goes, I just can't find someone that really gets to, the, to connect the dots. And I said, well, why don't you try a supply chain person that has an engineering background, that has been an engineer as an undergraduate? And she hired a, a supply chain professional. And she said one of the things she really loved about it was his soft skills and his ability to sit and listen and connect the dots and that's one thing I really love about the University of Tennessee. We're really good at working on the soft skills. Even back in the day when I graduated, we gave presentations. We pretended like we were a company and we would go and present to the executives. We had four big projects and we'd go to a bank and try to get a bank loan. Real scenario. Here's the business go get a bank loan. How's your presentation skills? How's your teaming skills and working together? And so teaming 
and presentation skills are being coupled with analytic skills. And I think that's fantastic for some of the universities who've embraced soft skills as well as hard skills. And not all of them have. A lot of them are just about this class. But more and more, I think you see people realize that the soft skills are important and are a huge key to your success. And I know me personally, those are some of the things that got me the most promoted. I will tell you, I was probably not the smartest student. There were lots of people who were way smarter than I was. But being able to work in a team and being able to navigate getting stuff done, that goes a long way. You gave us a little bit about some of the things that you were able to do as a student. If you were going back and trying to consult with some of the universities and say, here's some of the adjustments you should make. What are some of the things that you wish you would have known as a student, both as an undergraduate and as you were graduating? I think there's two pieces of advice. One I learned right away and one I didn't learn right away. I learned it after and it was through experience. But at the University of Tennessee, we had a course called Executive in Residence. And it was both at the undergraduate and graduate level. And each week an executive would come in and share their experience, different topics. And one of the executives, and I honestly don't even know who it was, but this tip has changed literally everything about what I do has followed this tip. He said, everything you do is either a pilot or a draft because it gives you permission to not be perfect. And I thought, wrote that down and I use that from day one. Here's the draft. What do you think? So when you're talking to your peers, if you got it wrong, it was a draft. If you're implementing something, the first phase is a pilot And by having that permission to not be perfect, but to try things, you don't have to be the status quo. Call it a draft. Here's a draft of some ideas I have. It's just some ideas. They may be far-fetched, but it gives you permission to challenge the status quo. And that's really what we're trying to do in supply chain, isn't it? Is get better, faster, cheaper. And if we don't challenge the status quo, We're never going to get there. And so young people need to come out and realize they're not just a butt in a seat, but they should bring their brain power and feel good about challenging it. But you don't want to challenge people who've been in the job 20 or 30 years. Well, I'm just a young guy, but I've got some good ideas. I've got some drafts of some ideas. What do you think? It gives you permission to not be perfect and to try out new things. And that's going to get a lot of attention as a young person coming out and and going into their job and using that positive, youthful energy and all that knowledge, those hard skills that you learned in in college. Now, my second tip, I actually kind of learned along the way, and that was career surfing. I had worked at Procter & Gamble and then Accenture, and they had a very clear career path. I was on the path at at P&G, and I decided for me, If I want to get to be a vice president, and this was one of my goals, by the way, I I love telling people, come up with your goal. What's your Mount Everest? Look at someone that you admire, you know, pick out someone you admire and then go pull their resume, their LinkedIn career and go back and see, well, how did they get there? And what I noticed is that people didn't have a career path. They career surfed. So I learned some things at P&G, and then I switched. I learned some consulting skills, and I went to work for Microsoft to do implementation. And so I actually, funny enough, in junior high, 
It was a true story. I was in a math class and I didn't like math too much. It was algebra. And I thought, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I definitely don't want to use algebra. I want to be a vice president of a company and I want to make $40,000. I thought if I'm a vice president and I make $40,000, that's it. I mean, I'm like loving life. And so even coming out of college, I said, I want to be a vice president. Now, I changed my expectations on the salary just a tiny bit, but I still said being a vice president of a major company, that's cool. And then I worked for P&G and I thought, wow, that's going to take me a long time. And do I like that career path or is there a way that I can career surf and go think about the skills that I needed? What skills did I need to be a, a vice president? And I thought, well, I like some of these skills. I loved my job, but why did I leave? I left because there was an opportunity to get some skills that I couldn't have in my existing career path. Going from consulting to implementing strategy, developing supply chain strategy to implementing strategy, I needed those if I was ever going to be a vice president. You need to have both. So what skills do you need for that end game? So think about your end game and reverse engineer the skills. And the company that you work with may not have those skills. You may have to career surf and even do a lateral. When I worked for for Microsoft, I actually went backwards. I made less money. Who ever thought you'd take a job making less money? But I thought, I have less money, but I'm going to do something that is tremendously impactful to my career and my skills. And it paid dividends. No questions asked. It was absolutely worth going backwards, one step backwards to take three steps forwards. Investment. It is, right? And so people have to think about their career as an investment, not just the school and getting a graduate degree and the money that you pay out, investment and all those skills. So think about where you want to be and think about it. Surfing, unlike a career ladder, You know, people use this career ladder. You take a step, you take a step. It's very linear. And surfing is you get up, you have some fun and you fall down and then you go find another wave and you get up and you have some fun and then you fall down. You're really looking at your career as a series of things that give you both hard and soft skills. During this short break, we recognize that this podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com. Kate, when you look at mentorship, what's your philosophy there? Have you been a mentor and a mentee? And what would you advise to someone that's seeking out their first mentorship? Ask. (laughs) It's real simple. Just go up to someone you admire and ask. You think they're going to turn you down? Chances are no. So just ask. I was assigned a mentor at Procter & Gamble, actually. So they have a very formal uh, mentor program. And it was wonderful. Loved it. It was very easy to go up and and ask all those stupid questions and those non-politically correct questions and without judgment. And so I definitely think you should get a mentor within your company, but maybe also externally to your company. Every once in a while, have somebody come up and ask. And and by the way, you can ask. I'm full. I take on mentors. Right now, I'm full with the folks that I mentor. But I have some people that I have mentored for over probably close to 20 years now. 
And I love seeing them grow in their career. It's fun to be a mentor and see how people grow and change. And they are applying skills to make them a better person, a better manager, a better supply chain leader. You get a lot out from both being a mentee and being a, um, a mentor. Looking forward, from your perspective, what are two or the three biggest influences that you see that may change and shape supply chain careers of the future? Oh, gosh, that's a really fantastic question. A lot going on there. But I think analytics, we started to use analytics as early as the 1990s when I was getting my MBA. Actually, even before that, when I worked for Procter & Gamble, one of the jobs that I had was to look at analyzing toilet paper and toothpaste, doing 500 graphs on the toilet paper category at a grocery retailer. Golly gee, if you put an end cap, which is precious real estate in a grocery store, and you happen to put the toothbrush right next to it, there's a lot of profitability in a toothbrush, but you're not making much money on Crest, right? So how do you optimize the retail shelf for that category? And that was something that P&G pioneered. And I had a great mentor who taught me the ropes on optimizing the retail spend of your customer. Super fun, highly boring. 500 graphs on toilet paper. But today, analytics for the technology every day gets better and better and better, right? It is absolutely stunning to see the technology differences that you have today versus when I came out of school. So embrace analytics, I would definitely say. Embrace the digital world. How cool is this that you can, during a pandemic, still have businesses operate And many companies aren't even having any employees come on site. We have our essential workers, obviously, but I do Zoom calls all day long. And we haven't missed a beat in our work teaching vested outsourcing. We had a deal, BP, for example, just signed a deal with Jones Lang LaSalle for global facilities management and corporate real estate optimization. They did every bit, every single bit of that was done virtually. Many of the people on the team had never met. You, they pick their supplier, they did a complete outsourcing deal, and they will transition 100% virtually. Embrace it. How cool is that? You can be so global today, far more than you'd ever seen in the past where you were constrained by travel. And we've always had conference calls and different things. But today, I think the pandemic has let people realize how easy it is to be global and to bring globalization to your supply chain. When people are trying to improve their careers, supply chain careers, of course, need continuous improvement. How do you keep up with the changes yourself and how do you advise others to keep improving? Read and collaborate. Our work at the University of Tennessee on Vested actually started with collaboration. We looked out and said, who all is the best at understanding these kind of performance-based contracts. So even while I was at the University of Tennessee, I reached out and collaborated with Dr. Carl Manrode, who at the time was at Georgia Southern, really well-known for performance metrics, supply chain metrics. So I said, we're going to look at how to measure supply chain success and some of these supply chain outsourcing deals. Who do I want on my team? Um, Partnered with a gentleman out of the University of Oklahoma Law School. 
He was a government contracting lawyer. You're doing contracts, got to bring in a lawyer. And worked with someone else who was at Penn State from a military perspective. And so collaborate. Because when you're bringing together people with diverse backgrounds, you can learn a ton. So embrace diversity. Bring on people who aren't like yourself because you can learn a lot from them. It's really great to have diversity and to look outside your field because you can see things that you don't have an opportunity to see and read. Absolutely read. I love doing a lot of research in the area of vested and relational contracts. It's, it's kind of like a starfish, right? You've got the body of a starfish and you just keep growing these legs. And it's usually because someone says, hey, have you ever thought about X? And so then I'm like, oh, that's an interesting kind of a starfish. I'll grow another leg. And, and just the story of the books. I'll tell you, this is a fun story. So we first started out, our first book is, was called Vested Outsourcing, Five Rules That Will Transform Outsourcing. Our second book was actually the Vested Outsourcing Manual. And it's because a couple people I'd heard said, well, Vested, the rules are, are really intuitive, but how would you write that into a contract? So I started teaming with lawyers. Here's how you write a contract that teaches these best practices. Then someone said, well, I don't like to read. Do you have a Cliff Notes? So Carl and I wrote a little, I'm, I'm not kidding. We wrote a little Cliff Note book called The Vested Way. And it's a super popular download. We put it online. It's free. So what a good way to get your idea to spread, just giving stuff away. The fourth book actually, again, came because someone said, well, Kate, do you realize that the reason why we don't have vested deals is because we're taught to negotiate and get to yes instead of getting more. So our negotiation skills don't support what you teach. And I said, well, let's write a negotiation book. And this was a negotiation expert. So we wrote a negotiation book. We teamed with a former chief procurement officer and wrote a book called Strategic Sourcing of the New Economy. Today, that book has actually been adopted by over 40 universities. So super cool. And then our latest book is called Contracting in the New Economy. And all of my co-authors are lawyers. It is designed for lawyers to help them understand that formal relational contracts absolutely are successful. And I think one of my favorite collaborations, beyond my wildest imagination, but myself and David Friedlinger, a Swedish attorney, teamed with Oliver Hart, Harvard University economist. So here you have a Harvard economist Nobel Prize winner, a Swedish attorney, and a supply chain person from the University of Tennessee coming together to write the principles of a concept of formal relational contracts for HBR. That is cool. So embrace diversity, embrace globalization. The world today allows us to collaborate in ways that we've never seen before. The pandemic has brought down walls where before companies would be more hesitant. Well, I've got to have a face-to-face. -face. We're now all very efficient at, at doing Zoom meetings. So, Kate, the topic of talent is big within supply chain. Uh, one thing I found over the years is that, you know, what separates good from great when you look at supply chain leaders is their ability to field a high-performing uh, supply chain team, as in hiring, developing, and retaining top supply chain talent. How do you think companies and people should go about uh, evaluating talent and really focus it on bringing the very best out of their employees? I want to focus on the last part of that question, and it goes back to where we started almost, not quite the very first question, but I think one of the biggest barriers is that the more successful you are, 
the more you believe it's your success that got you there. And in reality, it's the people around you who get you there. And if I had one piece of advice or one pet peeve is when people are really successful, they don't recognize and celebrate the people around them. And they try to tell the people around them how to do their job. Oh, I need you to fill this role and here's the job versus I have this problem. You're really smart and amazing and I'm hiring you because you're smart and amazing. Go figure it out and giving them a little bit of autonomy now bounded autonomy. So don't get me wrong, right? It's kind of like invested outsourcing. It's not that we don't want to focus on fill rate, right? It's that we hired the, the expert And we need to embrace them as the expert to drive some of those changes and get out of their way. And all too often, we actually, the better we are, the worse we are at being managers. And it's not true for everyone. Many leaders absolutely get that. Get the right people on the bus and give them big, hairy, audacious goals to go figure something out. Instead of get the right people on the bus, tell them how to do the job. And be an anal retentive micromanager. Nobody wants that job. A little communication certainly helps along the way in those bounding aspects and innovate. So, you know, communicate and innovate. And if that all works, then we're probably happy. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, you need the hard skills. You need to have be able to fill the job, but the soft skills where the magic comes in. And it's the soft skills to innovate and communicate. You nailed it. Piloting, drafts, the courage to, cha- to challenge the status quo and to navigate the, through communication. How do you really get that idea championed? And those people who drive change, that's the real leaders of the future. Is there anything else uh, that you would like to share with our audience as it relates to career advice? Have fun. And if you're not having fun, change jobs. You should always, always look at the culture of the organization you're going to work for. You should be interviewing them, right? And making sure that you're a good fit. Cultural fit is absolutely uh, essential and have fun. And if you're not having fun, go find a different job. What would you recommend? We hear a cultural fit. So I've been working with that for many many years, but how do you recommend, uh, especially someone coming out that's new, starting their career, uh, ways to evaluate that cultural fit? Turn the tables on the interviews and start asking people, what do they like about their job? What If they had three words to describe the culture, what would it look like? Are those the words that you like? If those aren't words you like, then don't go to work there. I started to do that When I worked for Accenture, I really wanted to make sure I was going to be moving from the South to San Francisco, very different. And I'd interviewed actually with seven different consulting firms and had offers with six. And so I kind of was in an opportunity that I got to pick. And so I thought, I want to pick the one that I'm going to have the most fun and fit, that that I'm going to feel like a valued team member. And so I started to ask Everyone I interviewed with, I'd say, you know, they always ask at the end, you know, what questions do you have? And I would say, describe a day in the life if I join this company and then tell me three adjectives about why you like this company. What makes you choose this over another company? And you can learn a lot that way. 
That's great advice. And too many people make the mistake of, oh, I've got six companies interested in me. Which one pays the most? Yeah. And go back to career surfing. I'm going to say which one's going to enable you to have the most growth. Put pay aside. Like I said, I actually had a huge pay cut to go work for Microsoft, but I was able to take one step backwards in pay and three steps forward in skills. And that was really beneficial that allowed me to then move on to the next step. What do you think about students coming out into supply chain today and pieces of advice that you would give them about preparing themselves for a career in this industry? Well, I teach graduate and executive education. Lots of people at UT teach executive education, but I solely teach grownups. <laughs> supply chain is fun. Where else can you go and have lots of moving parts? And if you get stuck in one particular job and you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, you're probably not using your skills and talents. And so really look at how do you connect the dots? I've been a buyer. I've been a supplier. I've been a consultant. By looking at the different angles of a problem, it makes me far better at being able to come up with a vested methodology. If I'd only been on the buyer or only been on the supplier, you can't see the problem from all the right angles. So switch it up. So don't be afraid to switch it up. Uh, and learn, soak it in, read, explore, talk to other people. So invest in yourself and you'll get dividends in return. So when the executives come in, they're doing student 2.0 or 3.0. When they come into a classroom, what do you see about their approach to learning? How do you approach them differently? Great question, actually. And it's one of the things I'm super proud of what we've done with the Vested Certified Program. It really is about learning and doing. So people who come to our class, especially if they're going through the whole Certified Architect Program and taking the Creating a Vested Agreement class, their homework is their contract. So they're coming as a team. So the buyer and the supplier come together and their end game is creating a vested agreement which means writing it down on paper, it's a contract, and then living into it. And one of the hardest things that we find is that the more successful you are, the harder it is to unlearn. So if I, for example, get a procurement person and they've been a procurement person and a successful one for 20 years, they have a hard time with vested because vested is different. It's a relational contract, not a transactional contract. They've only ever done traditional RFPs and traditional contracts. And so there's a wonderful video that we play in class. It's called the Backwards Bicycle. You can Google it. I encourage you to do that actually, Backwards Bicycle. And it talks about, it's very hard to unlearn. So the more you're an expert at something, the harder it is to unlearn. And that's what we find in executive education. The younger folks, we had a team, actually a deal team, and they had a, a fairly young person on the team. And she goes, I don't understand why you guys have a hard time with this, because this isn't this just the way it's supposed to be? <laughs> and so it's like, yes, it is. <laughs> but these people have been doing the same job for a long time. And so to teach an old dog a new trick, you have to unlearn. So wonderful video. Unlearning is hard. And that's why I encourage people to surround themselves with diversity, to try new things, 
because that's how stuff gets done. If we didn't ever try new things, we'd still be doing the same thing we've always done. You would never get progress. And being flexible enough to change, willing to change, that's how progress happens. Hey, Kate, thank you for a great conversation and insights about supply chain careers. It's awesome being on your show and sharing. One of the things that I love about being a teacher is you get to share. And so I just hope that someone takes even one or two kernels of wisdom. So take some of the advice and and run with it. And I hope you are better because of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Supply Chain Careers Podcast. Be sure to listen to other episodes and sign up to be notified when future episodes are released as we continue to interview industry-leading supply chain experts. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com.